Living the Principles. This podcast is hosted by Latricia Smith and Phyllis G. Williams. Living the Principles seeks to expand mindsets, express beliefs, and edify excellence in hopes of building a stronger Black community. Welcome to Living the Principles. Welcome. I am Latricia, and with me is my co-host, Phyllis. Hey, Phyllis. Hello, Latricia, and hello out there, Difference Makers. I have three, is it three? No, it's four words for you. By any means necessary. When you hear those four words, who do you think of? None other than Malcolm X. And May 19th is Malcolm X Day. So today we're going to dive into the many roads that Malcolm X took. Let's get into it, Latricia. This day you are very familiar with, and we have said for a few years that we were going to go over it. Um, Let's start from the beginning. What are some things we watched a documentary to familiarize ourselves some more? Let's get into the beginning of his life. Yeah, let's talk about it. I am excited and I am familiar with this day, not because it's Malcolm X's birthday, but because it's my mother's birthday. So happy birthday to Malcolm X. Happy birthday to my mother today. So Malcolm X, yeah, when he was young, when he was a little boy, his father was murdered. His mother was institutionalized. She had a nervous breakdown. They believe that his father was murdered by white supremacists. There was a lot of different things that transpired before his father got killed. And his father was a follower of Marcus Garvey and the Back to Africa movement. So people just didn't like that. And they did what they felt they had to do, which oftentimes people did and still do to black people. And you use an interesting word. You didn't say you didn't sound definite that his father was killed because it sound it was listed as speculation. But I also read that he was severed on a on a railroad track, partly um, trigger warning for those who are triggered by that. But in as Latricia said, he his father was a follower of Marcus Garvey. So his father was very vocal about racial injustices. So that made him a target. So his mom had to be a single mom during that era. So she was basically blacklisted, not given a job, talked about, treated poorly. And she eventually had a nervous breakdown. Did you know how long she stayed in the institution, Latricia? I don't. 26 years. So wow. I'm wondering, yes, and in, in May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. So I think it's important to remember that when we talk about another avenue of his life. But yes, his mother was institutionalized for 26 years. Wow, that's a long time. So that was pretty much the majority of his life. 
And his yes. mother was in an institution. Yes, because he died at the young age of 39. And how about when he was in school? So he was in school. He He's smart, smart young man. And he's in school and they asked him what he wanted to be. And he told them what he wanted, what he wanted to be. And, and he was blown off and dismissed. Mm. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And because of what I currently do, not even just because of what I currently do, a lot of this stuff made me think, how much has time changed? Because if this was in the 60s, and that was, what, what, 60 years ago? And a kid, a little black boy tells you he wants to be a lawyer, and you say, do something realistic and be a carpenter, maybe. But he was a straight-A student. That just makes you think, like, how much has time changed? Is this still occurring in America? It's funny you should say that, because while I was watching this documentary, what I kept saying was the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because the very things they were dealing with back then are some of the same things we're dealing with right now. And it's just amazing. It's just, I don't even think amazing is the right word. It's just baffling that we're still in the exact same fight so many years later. It's terrible, absolutely terrible. It just it makes you wonder all of the people who came before us, the impact that they made and where we are now and the people who are here now, what's going to happen in the next generation? Are they going to be looking back the same way, saying the more things change, the more they stay the same? And it reminds me of the purpose of this podcast to spread the Kwanzaa principles 365 days of the year. Self-determination. You don't tell me I'm going to be a carpenter. I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to make more money than you, teacher. So (laughs) I think um, more that we awaken, the more that things will just look so out of this world and we won't be able to believe there was a time that we believed things the way we did. Yeah, that's true because I'm I'm pretty sure people who came up in that era, they they look back then and they look at now and maybe they do see something different. It's like wow, it's amazing how far we've come. So it really is a matter of perspective. So they told him he couldn't be a lawyer. So he ended up moving around more. I think he moved with his sister. He ended up dropping out of school altogether. Then after he dropped out of school and left his sister, he moved to the Big Apple. And all kinds of heck broke loose in the Big Apple. (laughs) What was Malcolm up to in New York? Well, we watched a documentary, but a lot of people know this because of the Spike Lee movie. Malcolm was doing it all. He was checking all the sin boxes. He was smoking. He was drinking. He was pimping. Uh, He was doing it all. And he was hanging out with the white folks. Yeah. While he was doing all of it. 
It's like those are his his best customers were some of the high level politicians and stuff like that. Now, we learned that in the documentary, but I don't remember. I haven't seen Spike Lee's version in a long time, but I don't remember that in the movie. I don't remember that statement being made that his best customers were the police officers and the politicians. But I remember being amazed when I heard that in the documentary. I think that came from his book. Okay. I believe that. I'm not 100% sure, but it sounded like when the person who was narrating James Earl Jones, some of the things that he was saying are things that I remember having read in his book so many years ago. So I was just thinking what he was saying was from his book, but I'm not 100% sure because it's been so long since I read the book and I I definitely didn't remember that. And is the book written by Malcolm X or is it uh, autobiography? Is it autobiography or biography? It's an autobiography. So that's what I, that's what I think. But don't don't quote me on it. Don't quote me on it. So he was doing all of this stuff. Like you said, he was into drugs and prostitution and gambling and, and all of these things. And eventually those kind of things get you in big trouble. And it ended up landing him in jail. So he he served a stint in jail. Do you know how long he was in jail for? I do not remember, but it was a number of years. The first time he went to jail was only four months. So, you know, I like using country sayings. He didn't believe fat meat was greasy. He went to jail for four months and he was like, "Mm, okay, I I still need some money. I I still need some quick money. So he, he went to jail again. And that time it was for years. Yeah. I, I want to say it was, Six years or seven years. Hmm. And like so many people, when they go to jail, a lot of people, when they go to jail, they find religion, they find God and or religion finds them. And that's where he came to know the nation of Islam and the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And of course, that changed his life. It changed his life from being a criminal, doing all those negative things and all the dirty dealings to becoming more spiritually awakened. And what was the word you use? A a radical. (laughs) Okay. Yes. But I do want to touch on a question. I guess it's like a psychological question. He chose that life of crime, even though he had such a hard beginning. A part of me was like, well, why would you go that route? So that was just interesting to me because when he was in foster care, it seemed like he was in some good foster care homes, but he still chose the crime route. Probably, like you said, that easy money was probably easier to do that than to do the right thing. And of course, when you don't have guidance and depending on where you are, who you're around, that's how you're influenced. So perhaps his influences were those people who were involved in that as opposed to people who were doing 
other things that will cause them to grow instead oh. of being in a life of crime. Okay. Yes. Mm. All right. Yeah, I did use the term radical. Uh, and you know, there's always these comparisons. Um, I'm more Malcolm X than I am Martin Luther King. And some people say like that to show that they're more extreme or aggressive. And did you feel that he was radical? I or, did. Okay. And what were some reasons you felt supported that? I thought he was radical for one. One of the things that stood out to me in the documentary was the comparison he made of the the field slave and the house slave and how he talked about how the how the house slave would do all these things to protect their master. He would protect his house if the house was on fire, that they would try to put the fire out. And then he talked about the field slave and how the field slave, you know, hated the master and how, you know, if the house caught on fire, that they'd be praying for wind and all of these different things. And if, you know, if the master got sick, they would be praying for him to die. And then he turned around and he says, I would have been the field slave. So that was that's the first indication to me that he was radical. And just in the the teachings that he received from Elijah Muhammad and how assertively he projected these things and how assertively he projected himself. And even when Martin Luther King Jr., he was out doing the the peaceful thing, the nonviolence. Malcolm X, like you said at the beginning, he was by any means necessary. And, and he talked about the differences. Okay, well, you, you have people who are trying to be nonviolent and you're sicking your dogs on them. And then you have people like me and you're saying that we're promoting hate. So it was just all kinds of things to me that just made me think, yeah, he's radical. And, and not only that, I... What I loved about Malcolm X is that he didn't mince his words like he didn't bite his tongue. He he said what he meant when people tried to say that he said something like, no, you said that. No, that's not what I said. That's what you said. Since you brought up the word radical, what makes you think he was radical or do you think he's radical? I do think there was a point in his life that he was radical, but I know we're going to get to. We're talking about the different roads of his life. We talked about his childhood. We talked about his early adulthood. Now we're talking about radical Malcolm X. I think this is the, if we were to put a picture in everybody's head, this is when they picture him with the AK-47 looking out the window, Malcolm X, and the by any means necessary in the, the Spike Lee movie when he did this and all those people turned. And that man said, no one man should have all that power. I think that's the radical Malcolm X of people picture. And, oh, even the little gif, you know, the generated picture when he mm-hmm. slapped hands on the table. Have you seen that one? Uh-uh. I use it sometimes when I'm being silly. But, <laughs> like, when um, when cold stove runs out of Oreo cookies and out of <laughs> I use that gift for something being silly, but that's the one that's a radical Michael Max. I think people think of, but do I think he was radical? 
Yes. And I have talked about this theory so many times, the racial identity model. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the racial identity model. You go through a stage where you are kind of radical. And I think Malcolm X is a real good model of that racial identity model because he went through the stages. One stage he's like, well, I don't care. It don't matter to me. I want to fit in. I want straight hair. Mm-hmm. Let me get a conk. Let mm-hmm. me wear the boots. And then he went through another stage of by any means necessary. So was he radical? Yes. But what made me think he was radical on that documentary was he was saying every white person, it don't matter who you are. And during those times in the 60s, there were allies who were dying in the streets, marching alongside black people. Um, There were Jewish people who were marching alongside black people. And he was like, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> blue eyed <eye> devils. <laughs> he, he was still like, yeah, you're up to something. Mm-hmm. So that's what made me feel that he was radical. It wasn't the uh, house Negro and the field Negro analogy. It was the fact that he could care less what he saw with his own eyes in America, that he was radical. And I also wanted to talk, bring up this point. And I want to ask you what you feel about it. Is it possible that he looked at um, the leader of the Nation of Islam at that time as a father figure? Yes, but I think I think more than that, I think he did look at him that way. But I think more than that, he looked at him as if he was divine, because I think he said that God appointed him it was kind of like there are some some problems that needed to be solved and God gave Elijah Muhammad the solution to the problem so there was like this level of divinity that I think they believe he had like when you were saying one man should not have this much power that's what I thought about Elijah Muhammad I was like this guy has entirely too much power and he is way too influential and I think that's what happened with Malcolm X during that time, that he was so highly influenced by this guy. And perhaps it was the fatherly part, but I think it was also this Allah appoint, appointed him. So, you know, he's the he's the leader here on Earth and he just gave him a whole lot of credit. And we were talking earlier and we were talking about Malcolm X popularity. We were talking about different reasons that we feel that he was popular during that time. And you felt it was dealing with, you had a reason why you felt he was popular during that time. And I had a reason. Can you tell me your reason in the audience? I thought he was very popular at that time because I think the relationship that he had with Elijah Muhammad, I think Elijah Muhammad, that he found favor with Elijah Muhammad and he put him in leadership positions. And so he had all of these speaking engagements and he was in charge of the mosque and he became very influential himself. People listened to him as well. And I think it was, I think a lot of it had to do with the 
power that was given to him by the relationship he had with Elijah Muhammad. But I, I also think he was very charismatic too. Uh, he stood on his own. He what was a great speaker. He was. And like you said, um, he didn't miss his word, very articulate and knew what to say quickly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I never thought about it the way you did, that he was kind of the teacher's pet. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it right there, the teacher's pet. And what did you think? I thought of media. I guess my mind just went that way because I think maybe my great nephews or great nieces would think of me this way one day. But when I was watching a documentary, I said, Oh my goodness. Malcolm X knew Muhammad Ali. Like they were alive at the same time. So that that finally clicked for me because I don't think it ever clicked for me that Muhammad Ali, a Muslim name, would know Malcolm X. So my mind was blown at that fact. And there was a question a reporter asked Malcolm X, did he help um, Malcolm, I'm sorry, Muhammad Ali become a Muslim? He said, no, he's my friend. All I do is talk to him. He has a mind of his own. And to me, that was like, you know, when you're reading something and you get a, you get a hint that the story's going to shift. Just like he said, Muhammad Ali had a mind of his own. He also started to shift, had a mind of his own, and he was silenced. And I'm going to let you talk about why he was silenced. He was silenced, I believe, because he said something, I guess, that the nation or the leaders of the nation or Elijah Muhammad felt was out of turn when President Kennedy was assassinated. He made a comment about the roosters coming home. To, what is the saying? The roosters are coming home to roost, or something. It was something about <laughs> coming home to roost. And I guess people took that differently than he intended because when he was being interviewed, the chickens, that's what it is the chickens, the chickens are coming home to roost. People took it differently, I guess, than what he said, because when he was being interviewed, he said to the interviewers, I haven't said anything different than what other people were saying. I just said it in this way. The chickens have come home to roost. So then the nation of Islam, they were putting out statements that the words that he was saying were his words alone, that they didn't reflect that of the nation. And he was silenced for 90 days. They told him that he couldn't speak publicly or anything for 90 days. So he didn't speak for 90 days. But then after that, he said that they told him that he still wasn't able to speak. So I guess that's when he decided, well, they must not want me to be a part of this organization anymore. And then, but he was still like, you know, I'm still going to do this work, whether I do it with them or not, I'm still going to do this work. So he continued on with the work that he had to do. That's one of the things that I I really did love about him when you were talking about self-determination. He, he was not 
going to let anybody else determine for him. He decided for himself. And when somebody else was interviewing him, and I thought was interesting, is they, I guess they were asking if he still hated white people and all this stuff. And he said that he never hated anyone. And he was, he said, whenever he did give teaching, he always said, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has taught us this or instructed us this. He's like, those were never his words. He was speaking the words that he was being taught. And when he gained his independence, he was like, and these are my words. So I'm speaking my words. Those were the words that I was taught. These are the things I was taught by Elijah Muhammad. So those were never my words. So I really appreciated that uh, about him as well. Yes. And that was after the pilgrimage that he said that. Right. right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> am I getting ahead of myself here? <laughs> <laughs> so the pilgrimage, the pilgrimage is, we've heard the term holy Mecca is something mm-hmm. that Muslims do. I don't understand it fully, um, but that's why his Muslim name has Hajj in it, El Hajj Shabazz that anybody that goes over there, they can add that to their name, I believe, because it's honorable that they actually traveled there. And I think they're supposed to go over there. Every Muslim is supposed to travel to the Mecca? I believe so. Okay. So when he traveled over there, he finally was amongst Muslims of different backgrounds with blonde hair, blue eyes, and he said they treated him so, they were so hospitable. They drank from the same cup. They slept in the same bed. And he was taught by Elijah Muhammad that he could not, they could not even physically go there. Like they were so corrupt that they could not even go there. I don't know what he taught them that they were going to step on the land and blow up or something, but whatever he taught them. He was like, oh, they're here and they're so nice to me and they're so kind. So he really was amazed and transformed by that experience of um, the Mecca experience, which there's so much holy land over there with, for every, for different, the Abrahamic religions, mm-hmm. the Muslims and us Christians. So it was a turning point in his life. And you spoke about how... He said, no, those weren't my teachings. Those were the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is what I always said. Yep. And when you're right, when he came back, he was different. He learned that maybe he had been fooled by these teachings. It, It wasn't just black people, but there were white people too. There are people of all different hues over there and how it, how it was a brotherhood. He said, you know, these were his brothers, how they all came together and did, like he said, ate from the same plate and shared from the same cup. And that's something that he would have never done here in America under the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. So it was a, it was a huge turning point for him. I think he started looking at white people differently. Yes. Yeah, so this is what led up to his assassination. And do you want to talk about that? 
what organization he joined or some of the horrible experiences he had before his assassination and how he felt about it? I can't remember the exact name. I know it was the Afro-American. So I think it was his association. It was the Afro-American unit. I don't know. I didn't. I should have wrote it down. I didn't write it down either. It was something about Afro-American unity. At that point, he was saying that he would he would he would welcome anyone who wanted to solve the problems. Like we still had all these social problems that needed to be solved, and he was open to different people from different organizations coming in to be part of the solution. But like we talked about earlier about him being silent, it seems like they were continuing to silence him. And he was saying that he was getting death threats from the nation and he was getting phone calls. And then there was a point in time where his house was set on fire and people from the organization came up and they kind of accused him of setting his own house on fire, some type of publicity stunt. And he was like, why would I, like my my children, my wife and my life were all at risk. I could have come up with something else to do for publicity as opposed to trying to burn down my house. Apparently the house that he lived in was a Nation of Islam owned house. And they wanted him out of the house. So I, I guess they went to court and then they ruled for him to be out of there. But I'm like, the house is on fire. The house is destroyed. But even after that, he still continued on. And, and they were asking him if he feared for his life. He knew that his life was in danger, that people were trying to kill him. And he even said that people were trying to come to kill him. And the, the police didn't do anything about it. And he continued to talk about these different threats that that he was getting. But he still carried on. He said that, you know, he didn't have he didn't have any fear. He said he felt like he had died 20 years ago. So he was (laughs) he was ready anyway. And then he was given a speech at the auditorium. Can I say one thing before we go there? And I wanted to make a connection of what I said at the beginning. I wanted to say about his biological brother. There were a total of four siblings that were in the Nation of Islam of Malcolm X. So Malcolm X and three of his siblings were part of the Nation of Islam. And I I said at the very beginning that his mom was institutionalized for 26 years. And that would be a key factor to another part of his journey. His brother, this also was connected to his assassination, said that Malcolm X was also mentally ill. And that's why he was saying that Elijah Muhammad was inappropriate with teenage girls. So that really that was really what put a lot of, I'm going to say the word hatred and um, disgust before the Nation of Islam towards Malcolm X. So the fact yeah. that he did create that organization, it was the organization of Afro-American unity. 
and the fact that he spoke against Elijah Muhammad's um, transgressions. His brother said he was mentally ill. And I just wanted to go back before we you finished up with his assassination. Yeah, I do remember him saying that he was mentally ill. They were trying to put this wedge to make to make it seem like he didn't know what he was talking about or he was or he was lying. He's making these things up because he was alluding to the corruption of the organization where he said before it was a spiritual organization, but something happened. There was a turning point where then it became corrupt. And that's why he said his life was at risk because he said he knew too much. Mm -hmm. When he went to give that speech and there were people who were witnesses who were saying that there were two men who stood up and I guess they brought it to his attention. And he was he was like, you know, it's okay, calm down. Or I forgot what they said. He put his hands up or he did something to settle things down. And then the next thing you knew that they just unloaded on him and he was gone. And the police came. They took him to the hospital and they said that he was he was dead on arrival. Which was it was really sad. Yes. Yes. So the end of the documentary really clicked something in me because I was a I think I was like nine or 10 years old when Spike Lee's movie came out. And I remember at the end they stood up and they said, I'm Malcolm X. I'm Malcolm X. But I didn't know what that meant. But when that lady in the documentary was crying and they were asking people, why were they there in Harlem? And one of the speakers of the supporters said, he, he is me. Mm-hmm. He is the fighter. He is the speaker. He is the dad. He is me. That part in Spike Lee's movie finally clicked. He is the little boy in school that is told he's not going to be anything. Mm-hmm. He's the he's a child that has an absent father. All these factors, he is me. So it that documentary made that movie kind of hit different. So I really am glad that you recommended it that I watched that movie from the 70s. So it was not that long after he had been assassinated. And it was just great meshing it all together. Hey, you got me wanting to watch the Spike Lee movie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more comments? The only other comment that I wanted to make was like you were talking about at the end, I was just reflecting on the end and these people from the news, they were, they were going around and they were talking to all these different people in the community about the impact of Malcolm X and his death and his life and just how much he, how much he meant to people. And I just wanted to ask you about the impact. What impact do you think he left behind? I mean, we're still talking about him today in 2022. (laughs) Okay. The impact that I said that he left behind for me, 
I think that word self-determination, he could be the avatar for it. So being who you are, but also striving to be better. I think that's the impact he made for me. Even when it's not popular, even when there's people against you. Because I think he always tried to operate, not always. I think after he joined the Nation of Islam, he did try to operate from, from a greater good. But mm-hmm. what, what he perceived as greater good sometimes wasn't. You know, Phyllis, I think you just gave our principal challenge. So thank you for that. Principal challenge. Live them out. So, <laughs> so our principal challenge for today is to be who you are, but be better. Continue to strive to be better and make a greater impact. And it doesn't have to be a world moving impact. It could be an impact in your home, in your community, at your workplace. It doesn't have to be so profound, but just be better and make an impact. All right. Are you ready for the good news? Open your heart, mind, and ears as we spread the good news. Not rumors, not rubbish. Living the principles, we spread the good news. Do you remember the popular Malcolm X shirts and hoodies in the 90s? Well, history is repeating itself. Supreme pays tribute to Decorova and his famous subjects on two t-shirts and a hoodie. The latter, which comes in five colors, showcases a 1964 photo of Malcolm X on its rear. White, black, neon yellow, and blue tees feature the same photo, while another version depicts another of the Carapa black and white photos. The images and the apparel that highlights them are simplistic, but incredibly impactful. There goes that word again. For Last Juneteenth, America Black Changemakers hosted descendants of prominent leaders. Amongst those were Ilyasa Shabazz, the third daughter of six from Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz. I said it wrong the first time, Shabazz. She called America's radical depiction of her father following his assassination in 1965. Malcolm X, an activist and religious leader, gained prominence during the civil rights movement. He advocated for freedom, justice, and equality by any means necessary, a motto he coined during a 1964 speech in Harlem, New York, in a position that branded him as a dangerous radical. This false image that was made of him was so inaccurate, and it's the reason why I set out to do my books, Shabazz told ABC News. Shabazz, an author and educator, has published several children's books exploring the life and legacy of her parents, including her latest book, The Awakening of Malcolm X. I think that could be our title for this podcast, for this podcast episode. As timely as ever, four decades after its Big Apple debut, X will receive its first full-scale revival May 14th through the 22nd in a Detroit opera production. Malcolm X has an opera dedicated to him. 
X's 1986 production and Lincoln Center sold out all four performances. It drew a record number of Black listeners, including Spike Lee, who went on to direct the 1992 film Malcolm X, to an opera at venue that had long attracted predominantly white audiences. So that will be resurfacing the opera X. That's our good news for today. Don't forget, we need gravy to run this train. So donate by visiting our website, livingtheprinciples365.com. And Latricia, our soul snack for today. Our soul snack for today comes from an African proverb, and it says, cross the river in a crowd and the crocodile won't eat you. That's our show for today. Until next time, expand your mind and impact your communities. Thanks for listening to Living the Principles podcast. Be sure to visit us at livingtheprinciples365.com to access the show and join in on the conversations.